0: G'day folks and welcome, I'm Chris Faber and I'm TJ Steadman and you're listening to the Answers to Giant Questions podcast coming to you from sunny Western Australia. G'day folks and welcome back to the Answers to Giant Questions podcast, the show that tackles your questions about the biblical giants. We're still shaking out the cobwebs of the the festive season and indulging in the last of the eggnog Uh, but we're looking forward to the the rest of this season of the podcast and uh, like I said of moving Stairs, it's really really going to escalate.
1: Yeah, that's right, Chris. Today we're starting the first of a short series of episodes on Lamech, or should we say Lamech, and that means we're actually going to get to the end of the text of Genesis 4, verse 18, this week.
0: Wow. Yeah, yay. Yeah.
1: yeah, I'm just going to go nuts and read half a dozen whole verses of Scripture rather than just read the same verse very much. Just to introduce us, to Lamech.
0: Excellent. That'll be a good change.
1: I know, right? We're not going to address all of this text right now, but as I say, we'll be spending a few weeks on this as a whole. So get excited because if you've read my book, you have some idea of what's coming. This is going to get really interesting. Here's our text from Genesis 4. To Enoch was born Irad. Irad was the father of Mahuya El, and Mahuya El was the father of Matusha El, and Matusha El was the father of Lamech. Lamech married two women, one named Adar and the other Tzilar. Adar gave birth to Yuval. He was the father of those who live in tents and raise livestock. His brother's name was Yuval. He was the father of all who play stringed instruments and pipes. Tzilar also had a son, Yuval Kain, who forged all kinds of tools out of bronze and iron. Yuval Kain's sister was Naama. Lamech said to his wives, Adar and Zillah, listen to me, wives of Lamech, hear my words. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for injuring me. If Cain is avenged seven times, then Lamech seventy seven times. So after all that, we still have to go back to verse 18 and finish what we started. Matusha El was the father of Lamech. Once again, and for the last time, we have this weird language of a man fathering his son as if he was giving birth like a woman and again just like Henry Ford was the father of the automobile and never once actually gave birth to a car Matusha L was the father of Lamech except that statement doesn't make any sense unless you remember that these names carry meanings and what that means is that we need to understand Lamech now, I'm not gonna come out and endorse drinking games, but if you're taking a shot every time I said Lemech's name wrong, you'd be tipsy already. I'm not gonna try and kill you with alcohol poisoning. It's Lamech. The trouble is that Hebrew grammar does not necessarily translate well into English in certain situations. And in particular with this name, because the very first time that we come across this name is at the end of the sentence. That means the form that this word takes is called the pausal form which is grammatically what Hebrew requires at the end of the sentence. And that means that instead of using the E sound as in Lemech, we get the A sound as in Lamech. That's only supposed to happen at the end of a sentence, but Bible translators in the interest of being consistent, decided to apply it every single time the name occurred from that point on. So we're stuck with it. Now I've mentioned that little grammatical anomaly a few times in recent episodes, and you must be wondering why I keep bringing it up because it doesn't really sound like a big deal.
0: You know what, Tim? I was just wondering why you keep bringing that up, because it doesn't really sound like a big deal.
1: Fair enough, mate. Well, I will tell you what the big deal is about. If we keep saying this name using the A sound, Lamech, what we're going to miss is something that should be a little more obvious if you're familiar with some common biblical Hebrew that's being used as wordplay here. Remember how I said ages ago that there were only a couple of names in the primeval history that had no precedent anywhere in the ancient Near East?
0: That's right, you did, and you said that Lamech was one of those names.
1: I did. We're talking about a name that does not appear in any context within the ancient Near East in any time period prior to the 6th century BC. You don't even have a basic root here that could be traced back to some other kind of name. We've looked at several names as we went through Genesis 4 so far, and what we found in most cases, and particularly recently, as we've been slowly trawling through Genesis 4:18 is that the names started out with some original root and were modified by the author who wished to use it to make a point. But the catch is that there was an original name that was used as the initial premise. Not so with Lemeck. The difference with Lemeck is that we have, instead of a name being turned into a word that means something else, a word that has been turned into a name. That name was invented right here in the text. Before that, it didn't exist. So what's
0: going on here then? Are we talking about a, a real name in history or not? Was there actually a
1: person who got this name? It might seem like that's important. And for a lot of fundamentalists, they need it to be an actual name because that's part of how they define scriptural inerrancy. But the truth is, as we've seen in our exploration of the other names so far in this fake genealogy, there is a point to be made that is far more important than the question of whether or not these names belonged to historical figures. So if there was some real person in history being referred to here, it would seem that it's not really as important as the message being conveyed by the author. Otherwise, the author wouldn't have needed to invent his name out of nowhere. It's just not logical for the fundamentalist crowd to say, if Lamech wasn't a real historical figure, then how do we know Jesus wasn't just made up too? Because the historicity of Jesus is scientifically more secure than the fact that you exist one doesn't necessitate the other and you don't get to leverage one against the other and say you need a historical Lemek in order to have a historical jesus it doesn't work like that the slippery slope fallacy is in play here and there's no need for it anyway i'm going to drop that particular bone of contention and get back to the point by the way if you heard me say fake genealogy just now and you're confused you might want to go back and revisit the earlier episodes in the season to get an idea of what i'm talking about This genealogy is constructed of names that have been altered, or in this case, invented, for the sake of making a broader point. It's not a line of real people in direct descent from one another. Now it's time to make things really confusing. I was just tapping away on my Apple Macintosh because I like using laptop machines, but the dictionary they use isn't really indicatory of my language, and the editor kept making me redo it, which made me both angered and enraged. I was sitting in a dirty room or a dormitory. I might have given it a brush, but I couldn't find one, so I used a shrub. Well, if you're trying to make things confusing, you have
0: succeeded. What on earth are you talking about?
1: I just gave you six examples of words defined by their anagrams. Uh, You did? That's right, I did.
0: What for? How is this relevant?
1: Well, it's relevant because that's what the author is doing here with the name of Lemmeck. Only the difference is that our author is doing it in a functional sense rather than in a literary sense. What do you mean by that? I mean that in the examples I gave, terms were defined by rearranging the letters into other words that provided a definition for the original terminology. But the author of Genesis 4 has changed the word into a functioning example of what he considers to define that word, not a definition per se. He's taken an original Hebrew word, which is melek, and then rearranged the letters so that they don't make any sense at all
0: so it's not really an anagram then in the true sense of the term is it
1: not really but now that the term makes no sense and the letters are all jumbled up we have a perfect example disorder and that's what we're getting at here the original hebrew word which means king has now become a jumbled mess and an example of chaos and that is precisely the point i'm still
0: not sure that i follow what's going on here
1: Well, it's about time that we concluded our study of verse 18 before we continue in the text. And to do that, I'm just going to lay it all out in simple terms. And I'm going to use everything that we've learned about these names in verse 18 to get out the message that the author is laying down for his audience. The man and his woman, Eve, had a son and named him Cain. Eve defined Cain as gotten or acquired. We're going to find out later that that's not really a correct definition of the term, but it suited Eve's purpose, which is why she gave him this name. We'll talk more about that later. It was Cain's greed that drove him to murder his brother, as we saw earlier in this season in our analysis of that story, and that was founded in a lack of trust in the Lord God, so greed and unfaithfulness resulted in the murder of Abel.
0: All right, with you so far.
1: Cain had a son called him Enoch, and you might remember that Enoch is a name that represents the desire to ascend to the heavens or to achieve divine status. Enoch was the guy who built the first city, which we know historically as Eridu, And the name of his son is the play on the name of the city. Irad was the city of dominion. Then we got into that part of the story in verse 18 where we have all these men giving birth to men. And what's happening here is that with the establishment of cities, we have a progression of negative outcomes spiraling out of control one after another.
0: Yeah, I sort of get that, but I'm not sure what to do with it. Like, how does that work as a narrative and how is it relevant to
1: us? Right. Well, it begins with the tyranny of the city builders. It continues in the name Mahuya El, which was supposed to mean something like enlivened by God or divine life. And we had connotations there of some kind of communion with God in the form of an ecstatic or prophet. But the author has turned it around to mean struck down by God and remembered no more, which is a picture of futility in the face of God. And this is why God is referred to as Elohim in this text to draw the contrast between God and humanity. Next, we had Matusha El, which was originally supposed to mean man of God. But again, our author has subverted the name and it has become the death of prayer. Now we see that not only has God refused to acknowledge the attempts of mankind to achieve divine status, but he's become hardened against the people who divide him. So the prayers are neither offered nor received. And as I said before, that's a two way street. Now we come to Lamech, whose name is simply an anagram of king in Hebrew designed to convey the idea of disorder or chaos. Lamech is the king of disorder. He's the king of chaos. And now we have seen the three roles that God gave man in the Garden of Eden. Prophet, priest and king. All brought to nothing, utterly silenced and thrown into chaos. This is what comes of building your way of life around a lack of faithfulness to God. Everything that started with the man in the garden has been building toward this pun intended it was the man in genesis 2 who was supposed to function as the voice of god to humanity and the priest of god to humanity and the king who embodied god toward humanity and it was his inaction and his passivity that resulted in the dereliction of his duties which culminated in the fall of man at the hands figuratively speaking of the servant And we've talked so many times on this podcast about the way that the man is not identified with a name because he represents all of us. And we are all represented in him. That means that Cain, too, is represented in his father, Adam. And just like his father, he is functionally dead, not only in his own lifetime, but in the succession of all that proceeded from him. In every respect, the legacy of Cain is the undoing of everything that God created man to be. We, as God's prophets, God's priests, and as God's kingdom on earth, have been struck down, silenced, and thrown into chaos, and all of it because we did not trust God to provide in his time. This is the message that the author of Genesis 4 has for the people of God in exile, and that's not just applicable to the 6th century exiles in Babylon, there's a message there for all of us.
0: That's awesome, Tim. You know, if we if we hadn't gone through those names and that genealogy, so... Thoroughly and carefully, we never would have seen the message that God is is bringing out in that text. It's it's quite powerful actually, and so much more than just a, a boring list of names.
1: So much more, and there's more to come. Next week we begin diving deep into the story that inspired the author of First Enoch. As we get into the details of Lemek's family and the deal he made to ensure an immortal legacy. That's right. We're on the path toward the giants and the story of Noah and the flood. This year is going to be absolutely epic as we continue on the Answers to Giant Questions podcast. Stick around. All
0: right. Well, that means it's time for some Q and also some A. Let's do it. I want to hear your
1: giant questions. If you have a question about stuff you've heard on the show or somewhere else, something you found in your Bible or just some general feedback you'd like to tell us and the world at large, here's how you do it. Head to the website, giantanswers.com. Send me an email at outlook.com. I personally receive all your mail and I will try to get to all of it. I love hearing from you, especially if I can help you get answers to your giant questions. All right. Leslie asked via the website, giantanswers.com,
0: are people with the RH negative factor blood types descendants
1: of the new... Nephilim. Okay. Well, that's a quick and easy one to answer. The short answer is no. The long answer is no. Uh, but seriously, it, it is a legitimate question and I have tackled this before in previous episodes of the podcast. So I'm going to direct you to those in particular episodes one and two of this current season of the podcast. will address that for you. And that's going to give you a lot more detail than just a one word answer, which hopefully will be satisfactory. Thanks again to Leslie for sending in that question. Please keep it coming and make sure you subscribe to the podcast so you get all the answers every week. I'm feeling generous, Chris. Let's have another question.
0: All right. Well, let's try this one on for size. Uh, Tim asked this question in the Answers to Dying Questions podcast discussion group over on Facebook. Looking at a correlation between the 430 or so years the Israelites were in Egypt to the birth of Jesus, I was pondering the uh, Annunciation to Mary how we seem to gloss over the magnitude of this and, and impact It had upon her, would it be fair to suggest that Israel at the time of Jesus' conception were anticipating the coming of the Messiah as it had been 400 years since the last prophet based upon Israel being delivered by God through Moses 400 or so years sojourning in Egypt? If so, the magnitude of this visitation and announcement to Mary would have been beyond comprehension.
1: That's a really interesting question, Tim. Thanks for sending that one in. Definitely not going to get a one-word answer on this one. Okay, so what are we talking about here? We're comparing two different periods of time. One of them is the time that elapsed while the people group that became known as the nation of Israel was forming in the land of Egypt prior to the Exodus. The other is the time between the ministry of the prophet Malachi and the advent of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the question is, could there be some kind of meaningful connection between those two periods of time? Specifically, would anyone in the lead up to the advent of Christ have reasonably had an expectation that the Messiah was coming on the basis of the sojourn in Egypt? I think the first key to addressing this question is to ask how Israelites were thinking about these periods of time. And that's going to help us understand whether or not they saw them as comparable. So we'll consider the sojourn in Egypt first and see if we can get a handle on how Israelites were thinking about that time both while it was happening and after the fact. The sojourn in Egypt is considered to have lasted 430 years. That comes directly from Exodus 12, verses 40 to 41, which says, now the length of the time the Israelite people lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of the 430 years to the very day, all the Lord's divisions left Egypt. It's interesting to note that this reading comes from the Masoretic text, When you read the Samaritan Pentateuch and Septuagint, they have Egypt and Canaan, not just Egypt. This means that they consider the time actually spent in Egypt to be shorter, and you only get the full 430 years if you include the time that the descendants of Abraham were in Canaan prior to Egypt as well. That's significant because it means that this 430 year period encompassed a variety of different experiences, And the Israelite population would not have treated the whole thing as a single monolithic block of time as if to say the whole thing was like this. So in there you have good times in Canaan, bad times in Canaan. You have the time spent as shepherds in Egypt, the time spent in servitude in Egypt, the time spent under oppression in Egypt, and then the escape. So it wasn't 430 years of people longing to be freed from the misery of forced labor in Egypt, although that's how it may have felt by the end of it. And the people of Israel were certainly crying out for deliverance from Egyptian oppression, which is what prompted the Lord to raise up Moses as a deliverer. And Moses did lead them out. And we know the story that Moses did not set foot in the promised land, but Joshua did. And Joshua has a pretty much the same name as Jesus when you adjust for the different translations and the different dialects that the name has been through. So I guess at a stretch, even though you don't end up with 430 years as a nice round figure when you do this, you could show that both of these periods of time that Tim is asking about in his question, eventually lead to a deliverer whose name means Yahweh is salvation.
0: That's kind of cool, actually, but doesn't really address the question, which was around the expectation of a Messiah at the time of the advent of Christ. So give it to me.
1: That's true. All right. So, yeah, let's just talk quickly about the so-called silent years between the events of the Old Testament and the New Testament. It's known by some members of the Protestant community as the 400 silent years because it was a span where no new prophets were raised and God revealed nothing new to the Jewish people. Many of the deuterocanonical books accepted as scripture by the Catholic Church and Eastern Orthodoxy were written during this time, as were many pseudographical works, the Jewish Apocrypha and the Dead Sea Scrolls. An understanding of the events of the intertestamental period, provides historical and literary context for the New Testament. Not only that, but the abundance of literature produced during this obviously not silent period of Jewish history should provide abundant proof of what kind of expectation was held by the Jews at this time concerning the Messiah and the timing of his coming. This period in Jewish history, which began after the return from exile, had a very different context to that of the sojourn. The people were in the land and in many cases still returning to the land. Unlike the relative stability of the time in Egypt, this new period was marked by frequent periods of political and national unrest. You had various skirmishes between the Parthian Empire and the Roman Empire, which saw Jerusalem change hands a number of times. None of this correlates really well between the sojourn and the second temple period. It was actually the prophet Daniel who was able to narrow down the timing of the Messiah, and I tend to take an early date for Daniel, so I see that as a prophetic foretelling of the Messiah's coming. Daniel doesn't predict the advent, though. Daniel's timeline is actually fulfilled on Palm Sunday on the day when Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a donkey, and he gets that exact right down to the very day. But the point is, Daniel doesn't predict the birth of Christ, nor does he speak of the coming of the Messiah in any kind of terms that would give the reader the impression that he sees this time in which he awaits the Messiah as some kind of second Egyptian sojourn. Likewise, when you consider the second temple period material, you really have to draw a long bow to see any kind of reference to the sojourn as a reflection of their present context. Now I don't claim to be an expert on second temple period literature. And if anybody is aware of anything like that in some obscure writing somewhere, feel free to let me know, but I don't see it. And that leads me to think that Jews in the second temple period didn't see it either. We do have evidence that the early church may have made some connections like this in retrospect. One example of this is in Eastern Orthodox iconography, which depicts the Theotokos, or the Virgin Mary, if you don't speak Greek, as the bush that was burning but not consumed in the presence of Moses on Mount Horeb. So according to that imagery, the bush is Mary, and the flame itself is a hypostasis or manifestation of the pre-incarnate Christ. Thanks to my Orthodox friends for pointing that one out. You know who you are. There was a bit of discussion around this in Tim's post in the discussion group on Facebook, Don't forget, you can always search for that group and join it. It's not exclusive. We'll let you in. Anyway, the problem is, of course, that the Orthodox iconography comes about much later. And as such, it doesn't prove that there was any expectation that the advent of Christ would have been foreshadowed by the burning bush encounter. Or that there was any other parallel between the liberation of Israel from Egypt and the advent of the Messiah. That doesn't delegitimize that perspective. I'm just saying that it doesn't answer the question we're dealing with because it's looking back rather than anticipating the Messiah. We had some other contributions from the Facebook group on this question. One of our listeners suggested that the Greeks may have had some idea that the Messiah was imminent back in the days of Alexander the Great, who had apparently been forewarned in a dream not to destroy Jerusalem. Also really interesting. However, considering the timeline that this question is focused on, it was the Romans who were in that position rather than the Greeks when Jesus eventually arrived on the scene. That is still a really awesome story, though. Getting back to the whole Romans versus Parthians thing that I mentioned earlier, and I was having a chat with a friend of the show, Doug Overmeyer, about this. Um, you might remember him from season two. I had him on as a guest. Uh, that whole situation of tension between these warring states was really quite dramatic for an extended period, coincidentally, centering around the advent of Christ. It turns out that what Herod was so worried about and what had troubled all of Jerusalem so deeply when the Magi arrived from the east, Looking for the king of the Jews was this idea that possibly these guys were looking for a new Parthian ruler who was looking to depose Herod and take Jerusalem once again for the Parthians. Now that's a far cry from messianic expectation. What we've got there is the nation of Israel dreading the thought that they are about to be subjected to yet another foreign power imposing some figurehead called the king of the Jews who was neither Jewish nor messianic in nature. They certainly didn't anticipate such a person to be the deliverer that the prophets had spoken about. So as far as the political landscape in Judea was concerned, there was certainly nobody going around telling everybody that the people were about to be liberated like the way it was back in the days of Moses. Nobody was whipping out the calendar and comparing dates to try and figure out when the Messiah was going to turn up. They were too busy trying to fly under the radar and just get along with whoever happened to be in charge at the time. Having said all that, we can't ignore the fact that Jesus himself did spend time in Egypt as a child and the early events of Jesus life and ministry are written in terms that reflect the experience of the nation of Israel as a whole in their early history. That's important because the authors of the gospels want to show their Jewish audience that this Jesus was just as much a legitimate Israelite as they were. And they've got some very Jewish reasons for that. So there definitely are some parallels between Jesus and Israel, even if we can't make connections between the time of the sojourn and the time between Jesus and the prophets. Speaking of time,
0: I think our time is just about up for this episode of the podcast. Thanks again to Tim for sending in that question and to uh, the other Tim for answering it. And uh, thanks again to everyone who contributed in the Facebook group and that uh, lovely discussion there.
1: Yeah, don't forget you too can get involved in all things giant and otherwise weird that we talk about on the show by joining the Answers to Giant Questions podcast discussion group on Facebook, and as this episode proves, things are just getting more and more interesting as we continue to delve into the pages of Scripture. So stick around, and don't forget to send in your questions for the Answers to Giant Questions podcast. It's time
0: to wrap up today's episode, but if you want more, don't forget to get yourself a copy of Answers to Giant Questions questions we're asking readers to please leave a review of the book on amazon or goodreads to help it become more visible in search results even if you just give it stars that'll help but a full review is certainly really appreciated please also leave a review of this podcast wherever you found us so that new listeners can find us here on the show In the future, we want to be talking about your stories as well, not just our own. So if you have had a particular paranormal or spiritual experience, we want to hear from you. And we're also looking for your testimonies about how you have found the content and answers to giant questions to be helpful and or useful. Of course, this podcast comes out every week, but you want to make sure you never miss an episode. So if you haven't already subscribed, do that now and you'll get notified when each new
1: episode drops. That's all we have time for today.
0: We'll catch you next time on the Answers to Giant
1: Questions podcast. Thank you for listening to the Answers to Giant Questions podcast, a production of the Raven Creek Social Club. If you like what you heard today, please take a moment to rate or review the show. Music supplied under copyright by Graves Forsaken GravesForsaken.com. You can get the book Answers to Giant Questions by DJ Stephen on Amazon, paperback, and Check out the other podcasts at RavenCreaksc.com or Giant GiantAnswers.com. Please subscribe and follow us on social socials. Don't forget to
0: subscribe, leave a rating, and share. Send us all your
1: questions and stay tuned to this podcast to get answered. We'll see you next time. Until then, stay safe. Oh, Egg. Wow! How does that? Look at that eggnog. Is oh, it? Yes, it is.
0: Wow! Where'd you get that?
1: Ah, oh, it's got it's got whipped cream and nutmeg on the top. Mm. Wow. Yep. Um, I'm not a yeah. rum drinker, so there's no rum in it. Okay. Uh, I've I've substituted for uh, a little scotch. Interesting.
0: Um, So this is eggnog you made yourself or just from your secret stash?
1: Uh, I I had to uh, liberate the last carton from Woolies. Well done. Set them free. Oh, yeah. So, um, well, we've uh, we've had a crazy time. I finally... um, a year after renovating the boys' bedroom, um, ah yes, put a door that. on the on the room. They have a, a bedroom door. <laughs> nice. But I better.
0: Lovely. Get
1: around to that before they get much older. <laughs> True.
0: Yeah. Well done.
1: Mm. That's good. Yep. Every so often, oh. I'm still reminded that the the kids are still young. Um, today, I had to put a fresh coat of stripes on. Declan's toy tiger, lovely. Nice but work. He's had this thing since he was two. Wow. And the the stripes wear out every year, so mm-hmm. he has to get restriped. So, yeah. Good on your dad. Kids are still young, which means I'm still young. Not really justified. feeling as old as I do. Anyway.
0: Well, your your cool shirt there makes you look young.
1: Yes, bacon and eggs for breakfast. Uh, Thanks to uh, my other boy, Dylan, chose the uh, pyjamas. It it's for an excellent dad. All right. And on that note. Speaking of old guys. Yes. Let's talk about lamech.
0: <laughs> Not Methuselah. Well, I suppose they're all old, aren't they, really? Um, all right. You know, Tim, I was just wondering why you keep bringing that up, because it doesn't really... I'm going to try that again.
1: Nutmeg on the cream.
0: Fantastic. Well done. We made it. I wasn't expecting to. Thank you, Lord. Have a pleasant evening.
1: I will go immediately to bed.
0: We'll have a pleasant sleep.
1: Absolutely. was <laughs> terrible. There was a storm. Like
0: yeah, we got it too. There was lightning. No, no thunder. But yeah, lightning. Oh, mate, what is got, happening Andy?
1: We got rain. Oh, really? Um, a oh. bit terrified of storm. So she got up and um, you know, at At the same time, I was in intense pain because I suddenly got like gastro or something. Oh. And so. I like, leap out of the bed. I'm running to the toilet. They They're not hear thunder. I'm like, what's going on? Well, <laughs> I'm in the toilet. I hear my daughter running out of the her room and into the lounge to hide under the covers or something. It was all going wow. on. crazy. <laughs> it was crazy, man.
0: Wow. Yeah.
1: Um, yeah. And, you know, today was just a weird day. The kids were out of sorts. Everything was going on. I thought, man, this is going to be one of those days. And then you go, oh. Yeah, the internet's pretty bad tonight. I was like, ah, yep, yeah, okay, makes sense. Okay. Sleep apnea machine. I'm, I'm renting one for a few weeks and, and then we're going to buy it.
0: Yeah, is it working for you?
1: I'm getting good results when there's not like other random stuff messing yeah. up. You know, last night, obviously, I got yeah. that kind of ruined things. Um, There was another night where I had had far too much caffeine, so that didn't help me. But outside of those things, uh, it's working well. So instead yeah. of my body trying to kill me, 65 times per hour in my sleep um, that's that, that's down to only 3.8 attempted murders
0: wow as far yeah. as attempted murders go that's a good result yeah that's a drastic reduction
1: that's right so yes wow. my is uh doing less to kill me in my sleep now that i have that's this machine. so i'm pretty happy waking up alive in the morning yeah always a nice bonus that's so how i know it's going to be a good day